HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is supported by Pop M, a unique shop located in Littleton, New Hampshire, and by New York Mutual Trading, the premier Japanese food, alcoholic beverage, and restaurant supply specialist. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Today's theme is know where you're from. When people ask me where I'm from, I say Brooklyn. I've lived here almost 20 years, but really I'm from a lot of places. The places we spend time throughout our lives make up who we are and where we're from. What does knowing a place mean to you? I was born in Manhattan and lived until I was 15 in Westchester County, in a mostly bedroom community where the bulk of my peers had one or both parents who, like mine, commuted daily to the rat race of New York City. They spent a lot of time in traffic or on a train, but got to live in a nice little town that was moved in the 19th century to make way for the reservoir system to feed the growing city's need for clean water. At 15, I moved to Northern California, about the same distance north of San Francisco as I'd lived north of New York City, but they were very different communities. There was no rail line and very few people drove back and forth every day to San Francisco. Petaluma and the surrounding Sonoma County was its own economy. My high school years were spent on a skateboard, at punk shows and at the beach, but I knew I'd return to the East Coast. California was and still is an awesome place that I love to visit, but it's not where I want to live. I returned east to New England for college and spent a lot of time in and around Massachusetts and Maine with a short stint in Iowa for one hot summer and some tornadoes. But I love it here in the Northeast. It's not as vast as the West, and it has a much more hospitable coastline. There's plenty to see, and the West Coast is only a six-hour flight away. My guest today is an Angelino through and through. Richard Parks III grew up in what sounds like a California fantasy. Fruit trees and avocados for days, sun and sand, and all the great things Los Angeles has to offer. He's a writer, podcast host, and was kind enough to interview me recently about my book, Vinegar Revival, when I was in L.A. back in May. A few weeks ago, I had the chance to return the favor, and I interviewed Richard about his life, growing up in L.A., and why he'll probably live there forever. I have dreams of living in other countries, 
and really getting into their cultures or moving every year and learning the ins and outs of as many towns and cities as I can. But when it comes right down to it, there's something comforting about knowing where you belong and where you feel at home. For me, that's New England. But it's also New York City, so I'm torn. Lucky for me, it's all pretty close together, and I like driving. Having not had time to prep this episode, I'm just going to ask my guest today the questions that I normally send ahead of time, and we'll see how that sort of works out for an interview. When you don't have a chance to write down a thoughtful email in response, or however you do it. Yep, exactly. So, what is your name, sir? (laughs) My name is Richard Hill Parks III, but recently I've been going by Richard Parks III. Because when I recently authored a cookbook, uh, co-authored a cookbook with a chef, upon uh, deciding how I would uh, label myself for the it's, cover. I get it. It's a, it's a big deal. I, I chose whether or not my middle initial was going to appear because my father is Harry Rosenblum and my grandfather was also Harry Rosenblum. Oh, so you are in a sense a third. Sort of. My grandfather had no middle name. My father has a different middle name than I have, and I've never gone by the moniker third, but my father has used junior. So what did you settle on? Uh, just Harry Rosenblum. No okay. So I've been Richard Parts for so long, but... Wesley Avila, uh, the chef and co-author of the Gorilla Tacos cookbook, turned to me and said, everybody's named Richard Parks. And <laughs> by that point, he had been, you know, he knew I was a third, and so he'd been calling me RP3. That was his, and that's how I'm, uh, he refers to me as that uh, in, well, I refer to myself in that when writing his voice throughout the book. Right. And so, yeah, I went with Richard Parks 3. Um, but yeah, if you go by Richard Hill Parks the third, you're just asking to get smacked, you know? Yeah, it's a little... People think I have a trust fund. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I'm the third Richard Parks. It was my grandfather and my uncle is Jr. And he is the, um, the Reverend Dr. Richard oh. Hill Parks Jr. Wow. Yes. He is a, uh, or I believe they say right reverend. You know, he has a, he has a doctorate. Okay. Yeah. And he is an ordained minister in the Methodist Church. Wow. That's in, intense. Outside of Cleveland, Ohio. Retired. Yeah. Did you grow up in Cleveland? I didn't. I grew up in Los Angeles. All right. But in any case, it's, it didn't go continuously sure. through the generations. Um, no, I, I grew up in eastern Hollywood, around Melrose and Western. Got it. Yeah. Uh, so that answers the hometown question. Hometown is Los Angeles, where you still where you, where you reside today. Right, yeah. I mean, I, I left and came yeah. back, as we all must. Yep. But, um, yeah, I've been back for about five years. Live in Silver Lake. Yeah. Don't think that I could ever come back and live in New York. I think that that era has passed. That window is closed. But you lived here, so you've for a very short time. Uh, I never really like you know dug in here. Felt too obvious. Everyone who I grew up with in LA, you know, like moved to New York. Yeah, moved. It's like just just like everyone I know from New York moved to LA. So I went to college instead in Montreal, Canada. Ah, very nice. Where'd you go? McGill University. I know it. And um, and then after that, you know, was considering moving here and like getting an entry level job in publishing, but instead. Ended up working on a documentary film and et cetera and so forth and have lived most of my few years in California. And I don't think I will ever leave because it's just, I mean, I'm going to miss the farmer's market if I end up, you know, someplace like this. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you know, now it's pretty, I mean, like we're getting into a good season for the farmer's market in New York. Um, The green market? You call it a green market? uh, We do. I mean, it it is the New York City green market. Uh, In fact, was uh, co-founded by uh, the son of an old friend of my mom's. Oh, really? Uh, Helped found the original green market when it first started in Union Square. When was that? That was... My friends at Green Market are going to be mad at me if I fuck this up. Uh, I believe that that was in the early 80s. Oh. And it's like several times a week, right? Now it's several times a week. Union Square, several times a week. There's 
tons of other, there's dozens of locations all over the city. There was one today in McCarran Park here in Williamsburg. Um, I just there are now alternative that. like farmers markets that are not associated with green markets. Green markets is a uh, is a very is a specific nonprofit run by the city. I see. I didn't realize. I thought it was just a colloquialism, you know, an idiom for farmers market. Oh. It's it's an actual. It is an actual body. I mean, it's, a, it's an organization okay. that runs the New York City farmers markets. I see. So I mean, I think people call it the green market. They call it the farmers market. Right. Um, but I just can't imagine going to the farmers market and in getting like, like February, micro celery or yeah, or yeah, the when tubers. When there's just yeah. like it's like apples, and then which getting on the subway I mean, with like apples. my bag of apples yeah. and potatoes, what, yeah, carrots. parsnips or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, at some point, I feel like there was a probably a romance to that, but you know, at this stage, you know, you know I, I have laundry in my apartment, like. I got rid of the truck. I drive a Prius. Yeah. It's over. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, having just been in L.A., so Richard and I met in L.A. Uh, Richard was kind enough to interview me uh, about my book when I was there a few weeks ago. And so now I'm returning the returning the favor, returning, I don't know what, you know, returning. That's what we do. We invite each other on each other's podcasts. No, we had a great event at Now Serving, the awesome cookbook store. If you are in L.A. or planning to be, go to Chinatown and check out Now Serving. That actually, one of the things I want to ask you about Los Angeles, I find it very interesting, you know, in, in cities like New York, like Los Angeles, where the food culture is changing fast or has changed and you now have places like, um, what is it, Famous Ray's? Oh, Howlin' Ray's. Howlin' Ray's, yeah. sorry. Right. Famous Ray's is the pizza places in New York. Howlin' yeah. Ray's Hot Chicken, which is in the same little mall where now serving is, and when I walked up, it must have had a two and a half hour wait. Always. And someone told me it always has a two and a half hour wait. Always, yeah. And like to me, that's really, and I looked at that and I'm like, ah, oh, God, I would never do that. But then I was talking with Zach Brooks, right. um, who runs Smorgasburg in LA. And Zach said, no, I, he's like, I thought the same thing. I like, he, you know, he's from Miami. He lived in New York for a long time. He's lived in LA for a couple of years. He's, you know, constantly exploring food out there. It's his job, literally. Yes. And he said, he no, made it, it his great. job even before it was something exactly. that he got paid for. Indeed. He, he takes it very seriously. <laughs> and, you know, he said that standing in line for Howlin' Ray's was a great time. Like, it was fun. He met the people in front of him. Man, when he Zach, got to the front Zach of the says line. The stuff, and right? I just look at that and I'm like, so, so that's my question for you is like, you know, I feel like LA is a place where, like, the hype. Not that New York, but like, I don't know, I feel like New Yorkers are really cynical about shit like that. Mm -hmm. And my sense of L.A. is that in L.A. people are like, no, when you want Helen Ray's, you go wait in line for two hours. I mean, this is interesting because I feel like it's it's a complicated question because, yeah, I've I've thought about this. I mean, for me, the answer is simple. I just don't wait in lines like that for food. How about you? Yes, yes, I went to Helen Ray's once at 11 in the morning before it it had the two and a half hour line every day, but it was... It was still somewhat buzzed, and there was something of a line. I went with my friend, Tin, uh, who writes about food, too, and we ate the spicy fried chicken sandwich, and it was great. But I'm never going to wait in a two-and-a-half-hour line for that. <laughs> and I never have enough days in Austin. I've never gotten Franklin. You know, like, um, I'm not that guy. So that's one way to kind of address that question. But that's, so that's where personal stuff, in terms of, like, culturally, um, I mean, interesting thing about Far East Plaza, the place that we're talking about, we're now serving as and. Uh, there's a great restaurant called Lhasa that people love. Uh, Ramen Champ was there. Um, and Pok Pok was there. Pok Pok opened oh. there. And so Pok Pok, I had been to in Red Hook here and, and then in Portland I've only as ever well. been to the Portland location. I've never oh, really? been to the one here in New York. Yeah. Well, yeah, so Red Hook, out of the way, kind of. You know, yeah. it's like, um, 
but I somehow had ended up there and really enjoyed it. And I just thought it was funny that I had gone when I was in New York and sort of made that effort. But when it opened in LA, yeah, I went like once and then it closed. So he opened a, uh, a lunch counter there in Far East Plaza and he opened an actual bonafide Pock Pock with the bar and all that stuff nearby in Chinatown. And both of those restaurants folded very quickly. Hmm. It's odd to me that Howlin' Ray's has that line when we couldn't keep Pock Pock there. Yeah. Um, right. And I don't know what that's about. And it's yeah. true that there's tons of great Thai food very nearby in L.A., in Hollywood, or what they call Thai town. Yeah. I mean, there's so many great Thai you know, restaurants that have been there forever, you know, since I was growing up, um, that are institutions and deserve to be supported. Yeah. And, you know, mostly are run and chefed by Thai people and um, a lot of women, which is great. Um, but it, it's kind of odd to me that in this context of L.A., Someone like Andy Ricker couldn't kind of like make it work. Good, <laughs> yeah. It didn't work. Uh, when Howlin' Ray's is just this runaway. But I mean, fried chicken. I mean, it's pretty good all the time. It's true. It's true. I mean, so I guess that that's a. I'm gonna do my. Uh, that's a good segue into uh, you know, into my next question or, or a next question in my in my questionnaire. Um, if you could have one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Does it count if I say a baguette with pate on it and cornichon? You can okay. you can answer that question however you feel. There well, are I mean, qualifiers. I like that, like a, a crusty baguette with um, with with pate and cornichon is like the food that I like really yeah. love. A different when way I was to ask kid. the question is like, what's your perfect food? Right. That's just something that I've always loved that has like very strong both emotional triggers and also connections to all the food that I, I, I still love, you know, sure. and it's like the thing that I, you could kind of riff off of, but it's, one, it's something that I really treasure because it's something that my parents introduced me to. You know, my mother had lived in France, but, you know, the idea of these weird little pickles and like pate and bringing that for lunch, like I was made fun of a little bit right. on the schoolyard for that. But so having that experience and, and then, but still loving it and... And just the vinegar bite of that, and like that's why sure. I think Ken and Michelle. One of the reasons why they asked me to talk to you at their bookstore yeah. was because like uh, I don't know something about like super acidic foods I've always loved, and so I, you know it's something like I carry with me, you know, still. So yeah, that's that's kind of it. And anchovy paste, awesome. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Uh, did you cook a lot as a kid? Did your parents cook? My no. parents cooked, yeah. And so so anchovy paste. I, I made this dressing when I was a kid. Which was basically like a mayonnaise made from a yolk with, you know, Dijon and the egg yolk. And uh, we had this great, uh, it was a tiny little craftsman house on a double lot. And we gardened a lot. In fact, my family was on the cover of the gardening section of the LA Times when that existed. Wow. Yes. And it, it's a photograph. It looks very American Gothic. Like it was the 1980s, but it could have been the 1880s. <laughs> but we all had plots that we tilled. And this amazing, when my parents like, found Like ad, each of you in the family? Like you had your own? Me and my sister Elizabeth and my mother and my father, we had four little raised beds. Wow. In addition to this, this huge yard. And when my parents um, saw the ad in the newspaper for this house, it said Orchard. A one-armed judge had built this house in the teens... It was on this little cul-de-sac near the corner of Melrose and Western, and all the two little cul-de-sacs, and all the houses there had been built in the teens. His wife was a horticulturalist, and she had planted all these trees. Hundred foot by the time we moved there in the eighties, all this stuff was perfect maturity. Hundred foot avocado tree, uh, sapote, what? mulberry, three kinds of grapes, persimmon, yeah, pineapple, guava. Like, it was this incredible place to grow up, uh, fig, uh, citrus. So this, to me, 
what you're describing is like that is what would uh, what would get me to leave New York and move to LA. Everybody's like, you would love it in LA, and I'm like, I drive through Los Angeles and I drive through the neighborhoods, and I'm just like, oh god, I can't. I don't want to live in a place where I have to drive everywhere. I don't, you know, and like, yeah, I get the farmer's market thing, but like we do okay. And like we get some pretty good food here and I preserve a lot of stuff from the summer for the winter. But like having that kind of shit growing on my property, I would love. When I was a kid, we had a family friend who lived in San Juan Capistrano and had two avocado trees. And when avocados were ripe, they would FedEx us every week a box of avocados. So I remember as a kid, like my dad would come home from his office with this box that was, and we would eat avocados only for like a week because they were all ripe at the same goddamn time. We get like yep. 30 of them. Yep. I mean, that's the story. I mean, our avocado tree was one of my chores because uh, the squirrels would get to them and eat them. In fact, the avocados were strange. I mean, I don't know what cultivar they were, sure. but they had um, the, the dark, wrinkly skin of like a hoss. But they had these large pits and there wasn't much flesh. And the squirrels would get to them and like eat half of them and then they would drop from the tree. And then there would be a bunch of little avocado trees sprouting up at the base. So it was my job to pick up that detritus. But then also just garbage bags full of these things that we would give away to people. But um, you couldn't really like fan it out or whatever. Right, right. But uh, a friend of mine, um, a guy I know and admire, uh, decided to interview me for a story. His name is John Birdsall. Uh, he's a great food writer. Uh, for Bon Appetit about the history of avocado toast because in talking to people like me who grew up in LA realized for us this was before it was a fad food it was just yeah. something it was an after school snack right you know and so you we, had to put the avocados on everything you so had to you put them on your Cheerios you yeah. put them on your toast you put them on put them on chips, English on muffins whatever, and yeah. a little Cavender's Greek seasoning on top it's great <laughs> my dad claims that he would broil the English muffin a second time after he put the avocado back in but I cannot believe that he did that to me I hope that he didn't <laughs> do that and I don't specifically remember that uh but so anyway there was dill in the yard and i used to make this salad dressing with anchovy paste and basically make you know a mayo um uh but with dill and roquefort uh and and uh vinegar and lemon and i called it richard's famous salad dressing and i made a little label i mean the fancy food show is coming up So, yeah, I mean, never a serious cook. and so, But, I mean, my interest in food and writing about food definitely came through, you know, kind of cooking at home, cooking for friends, and then doing weird, like, fermentation and pickling projects as sure. well. Um, but, you know, my casual interest in food is analogous to my casual interest in, you know, cooking. I think it's something we should do. Yeah. Do you yeah. have any more books in the works? Uh, I'm working on a book right now, a totally different kind of book that's about drink. It's going to be about boba. What's boba? Uh, like, oh, on the East Coast, generally people say bubble tea. Ah, yes. So tapioca balls, the milk tea from very, Taiwan. Very familiar with bubble tea. Never heard it called boba. Yeah. Um, I don't think this has been announced or anything like this, but yeah, we're doing a book. I'm doing this book with the boba guys. Uh, they have a bunch of stores in San Francisco and New York, and they just opened in L.A. too. Cool. But it'll be the first like major English language book about this phenomenon that is yeah. huge in Asia and... You know, kind of came to America as a fad in the 90s. I mean, I certainly remember it, uh, you know, being around. But they've kind of grown it up and they have this new take on it. And it's, I mean, hopefully the book will speak to, like, this huge audience of people. So my question for you since you're writing a book about this is do you need the special machine that puts the fully flat piece of plastic on top of the cup to make this stuff properly? That is my favorite thing about going to those places because that is the only place that that machine is in use I'm, that I'm aware of. You could use it right, for so many things, yeah. but the only place I've ever seen it is in bubble tea. We're going to have to deal with that in the book. Yeah, the hardware at home. Yeah. 
Good question, Harry. I don't Hard have an here on Feast Your Ears, folks. Uh, do you have any pets? Yes, I have a dog um, named Jubal, and uh, named after the first musician in the Bible or the, the, the Torah, oh, okay. um, what I know is the Old Testament. Um, and uh, he is a 13-year-old wire-haired fox terrier who used to be on my business card, but I just printed a new one. Um, yeah, his legs are giving up, but he still likes to, you know, quiver uh, at the foot of the table and lick the plate after dinner. So he's still having a lot of joy in his life. I bet. Yeah, no, <laughs> he's a very well loved dog. I mean, he sort of split between me and my parents. My parents, you know, are still in LA, and they actually are they still in the same house? No, uh, we left that house. There was a major earthquake in 1994. Yes, uh, the we North hear about those things here. We have not experienced them in New York. But. It was big. The chimney came in. The floorboards, Ooh. and all of a sudden, we were going to leave that area. That and the, yeah, the riots. So, they, yeah, and then, so then we lived somewhere else. Then my parents moved to Pasadena, which I contend is maybe where I should have grown up. It seemed very idyllic out there. I had <laughs> never got to go to Pasadena when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> But, yeah, they recently moved to a house that's, like, two miles from my house. Um, and so we cart the dog back and forth, and he is, like, turning into an eccentric old man who knows how much everybody loves him. Yeah. I mean, that seems like a pretty L.A. thing, right? I mean, you know. Yeah. I've seen the pampered the, dog? I've seen... No, I mean, the, 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 the old man who knows how much, like, everybody loves him, right? Like, the, you know, sort of kvetchy, like... <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, he's kind of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have any kids? No. No. Um, if you this is the dinner, questionnaire, huh? It is. If you could it. have dinner with anyone, who would it be? Could be someone you've had dinner with previously. Could be someone you've never had dinner with. Could be someone alive. Could be someone dead. Could be fictional. Yeah. Um, that's a really fantastic question. You know, I think that I would love to have dinner with Thomas Jefferson. I just think that he I think would, my daughter would say the same thing. I think, yeah, it comes from a childhood. As, you know, like, I did do a book report or, or you know, like elementary school profile on Thomas Jefferson, but I think it was like Kennedy said something about uh, when he had, like, all the heads of state at the White House once. He was like, never before has there been such a collection of intellect at this table since Thomas Jefferson sat here alone <laughs> to eat, you know. Uh, so, you know, when he played the violin and... Obviously, some things have come out about what he did recently that I would love to nail him on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <certainly. laughs> He's a confusing guy. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I often wonder about what those sorts of conversations would really be like and, and how much you would even be able to communicate, right? Because your, right. your point of reference, although being human and being American, the point of reference is super different. We'd just have to in try. terms of how, yeah, I mean, it'd just be very, it'd be fascinating to try to get get past the like either either oh my god you're from the past and you just showed up here in the future, or the like you're from the future and you just showed up in the past. Well, right? hopefully like, he would open some of his nice French wines that he got, you know, hope. during his yeah. trips, and I could see what that whole thing is like because yeah. nobody knows that either. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, he he was probably he was one of the few that was drinking a lot of wine. Yeah, at the time. No, definitely. Sure. I mean, he he got to do it all over the world. Yeah, exactly. Uh, table for one and dinner party. What's my preference? Yeah. Like, who am I? Yeah. I'm a dinner party. Right. But I love eating alone, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I'm out, I love eating, like, at the bar by myself. Yeah. I think that that is, like... Do you have like, a particularly memorable solo eating experience that you've had recently? I guess not. 
I don't eat so much uh, by myself. You know, like, I have a live-in girlfriend, and uh, we go to the Hollywood Farmer's Market once a yeah, week. Yeah, we yeah, used sure. to get two CSAs, and so, yeah. like, we do a lot of cooking at home, you yep. know. And to an extent, I, I, I work at home, and so I'm able to do that. Yep. Um, but, no, I, I just, like, I think sitting at the bar... And having the bartender right there in front of you yep. is my favorite way to eat because also it's it's not about this person like checking in on you or doing that in the right way. It's just there's this more fluid kind of relationship between yeah. the service and yourself and there's like different ways that you can kind of telegraph what you might want or, or, that, or that you are totally okay, you know, and um, I just, I like that sort of dance of, of service and yeah. and also... I just love, like, taking in a meal by myself and people watching, I guess. Yeah, that's really... I mean, I love the people watching aspect of it. Um, I definitely... I always am struck by the difference in pacing when you eat alone. Right. Both on, like, a personal level and also on a... Because there's no conversation happening, I find I need to slow myself down. From consuming too quickly? Yeah, from yeah. eating too fast because there's no talking to totally. kind of break up the eating. No, when I'm at home, like... The, the actual eating part will <laughs> go crazily fast. I had a great meal alone recently at Petit Trois, which is a restaurant in L.A., a Ludo Lefebvre restaurant. It's like the Parisian bistro style. Yeah. And they have great butter and baguette and pate and cornichon and all these things <laughs> and wonderful cocktails. And then it was like one cocktail, then like the crazy burger with like this like really rich like sauce on it and amazing fries. I don't... I, I think maybe it's like beef towel or something like that, but they're great French fries and like one glass of wine. And I was like, that was the perfect like indulgence slash moderate. And I just like yeah. being in control, <laughs> you know, like I'm like, you know, I can kind of indulge to the exact extent that is proper maybe yeah. um, without the sort of like lingering. But when I'm at home, I'm just like Mr. Poppin' Bottles and like, I'm like, let it all rage on. Yeah. Um, and I, I love cooking for people and yeah. This episode is brought to you by Pop M, a unique shop teeming with vibrant colors and a wash in pop art, located in Littleton, New Hampshire. Its alternative cafe marries healthy and fresh with luscious and decadent treats. At Pop M, indie brands and local artists mingle, bringing quality and hot off the press style. Follow Pop M at popm.nh. This episode is also brought to you by New York Mutual Trading, the premier Japanese food, alcoholic beverage, and restaurant supply specialist. Mutual Trading is the Japanese food authority, true to the heart in upholding genuine Japanese food traditions and progressive in exploring new ways to provide innovative restaurant supplies and services. They import, export, distribute, and manufacture the top brands for retailers and food service customers nationwide. Learn more at nymtc.com. Do you, uh, so I was recently, I was recently thinking about this thing and I, I had read something about it a couple of years ago. Somebody had written a, a, a sort of sociological take on people ordering at a table and how, like what happens. And someone, I think had done an experiment where like, what happens if you start at different people at the table, what they order. I'm sure. Because people change what they're going to order. Like when you look at a menu and you're with a group of people, you're like, all right, in your brain, you're like, all right, I'm going to have the monkfish. And I'm going to have, like, a side of broccoli and right. mashed potatoes or whatever the options are. And you're like, and I'm going to have a red wine. Like, you figure it all out. 
and then and then Steven orders the monkfish. Exactly. And you're like, so what's well, your take on that? Well, then it's like, oh, is Steven going to think I'm biting his style? Or, or yeah, I mean, I, I think that it does affect me. I think that's probably one of the reasons why I do like eating alone, where I'm just like, I can kind of like dial this into the maximum extent. I've recently decided to try to not let that stuff affect me, and I recently went out to dinner with two friends, okay. uh, and we each ordered the exact same thing. Three guys. Three guys. Three, yeah. Different, different drinks. One guy was drinking beer. One person was drinking red. I was drinking rosé. But the we ordered the exact... We ordered two appetizers to split, and we each ordered a burger exactly the same. But maybe it's key that they were three different drinks. Maybe. it's a good point. Because if Joey ordered the rosé, you know, by the time it got around to you, if you were third... But I've been trying, and 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 it you know it only it comes up in certain certain situations, not in others. I mean, when I'm meeting with my family, I feel like it doesn't come up. Yeah. Um, when we go out, I mean, just the way that my wife and I end up ordering food together, and our kids, and like figuring out who's going to share what, right? Because with kids, they're not going to finish their food anyway. So like, you sort of rearrange what you're ordering for that. But when I go out with other people, I think I've been trying recently to be like, okay, what do I want? Right. And I try to stick with it, yeah. pretty much. Unless someone throws a curveball and they're like, oh, do you want to split this and this? Or like, but I, I've been trying to be like, I'm going to get this thing because I decided I want a burger with blue cheese right. and a salad. Like, that's what I want. And I don't care that the two people that ordered before me ordered the same thing. I'm still going to get that because that's what I decided I wanted. Well, oftentimes, I mean, two things. Oftentimes when I'm uh, out to dinner with friends... I haven't even looked at the menu by the time the server has asked for the third time if we're ready to order, you know? <laughs> like, it's just like I've, I've had the cocktail or whatever, I'm catching up, and then I have to make the split decision if I'm in an unfamiliar restaurant um, that affects things. Yeah. But also, obviously, this excludes, like, a lot of what I like to eat when I'm eating with people, which is, you know, a lot of Asian food where, like, you're, like, kind of meant to split things. Yeah. You know, like, if you're eating Chinese food, uh, generally, like... Right. If everybody orders the same dish... You're, then you have a table that you're dead. Full. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Forget about it's it. It's not interesting, and it's not the reason you go there. And so. I mean, that's that's a fun way of I think eating together that makes sense because I think it's in a sense designed for that. But in this kind of like whatever, if I'm ordering my thing and you're ordering your thing, I know last night I hadn't looked at the menu, you know, and I had been there and it was like eight people, friends and new friends, and too much talking and catching up, and then all of a sudden it was it was time to order and. And my friend Patrick was sitting to my right, and he ordered first. And I was like, yeah, I haven't even. And then it was going to skip over to my friend, my new friend, Brendan. And he was like, fried chicken sandwich. And he was like, bro, fried chicken sandwich. And I was like, that sounds great. Yeah. You know, like, it's like, how many other things well, could I want more? Yeah, and are you, I mean, I, you know, the likelihood that it's going to come and you're going to, like, taste it and be like, oh, God, I read this ruined my whole night. Yeah. This delicious Once again, the fried chicken sandwich. my whole night. Like, that's very unlikely. It's one of those things that generally goes down pretty easy, you know. Yeah. You're not usually like, I really wish I hadn't eaten that fried chicken sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> wish I hadn't let it sit there so long, but, yeah. um, Do you have, uh, you know, I mean, like, this is, you know, this is sort of a, like, loaded question, but um, if someone was going to be in L.A., where would you tell them to go above all else? Like, if they, you know... I mean, this is, I, I know my answer to this, and uh, I think that a lot of people would disagree with me on this, and I'm like, you know, people, because I write about food, consider me an authority on this for some reason, and they shouldn't, 
because it has to do with tons of other stuff yeah. and more about like what we're talking about. And but there's a restaurant called Musso and Frank in Hollywood. Uh, it was opened in 1919, and it's like red leather booths and exposed wood, and you know, dimly lit. And that's where Chaplin used to sit, and you know, that's where Faulkner got drunk when he was writing screenplays. And there's the bartender who did magic tricks for me when I was a kid because I've been coming here for special occasions. And you get the martini in, in the small old-fashioned glass with the dimpled metal sidecar and glass carafe. And it's just, you cannot get that anywhere else in LA. And, yeah. and it's the iconic experience of going out that is obviously like a mid-century, you know, kind of throwback. But um, to me, it's, it's an ultimate, like, iconic dining experience in LA. And it's in the middle of the worst neighborhood ever, you know? Like, it's, it's on Hollywood Boulevard. You know, just knickknacks for miles and... Uh, and then you walk in through this little door and it doesn't look like much. And then you're in, Orson Welles said, going to Musso's is like being in the womb. <laughs> and so I recommend doing that because you're going to have some stiff drinks. You know, you're going to spend a little bit more money than you, than you might. You're going to eat like a big old hunk of meat. Is it the best ever? I've never been to like Peter Luger's. Like, you know, it's, it's not like that experience, but I, I think there's something a little bit more. It, it has the sort of like... Uh, you know, sheen of like mystery and old Hollywood that I recommend people getting a little dose of when they're in LA. Cool. Yeah. I will take that under advisement for the next time. Next time I'm there. What is your favorite kitchen tool? My knife that I, it's a, uh, it's a Bob Kramer knife that is sold at Williams Sonoma. It's not like a Kramer yeah. Kramer, yeah. but I met uh, Bob Kramer and I started talking to him. About, guy. He was so, and he, and he sent me a knife. And I treasure it, and I use it every single day. Um, so yeah, like shout out to Bob. <laughs> like, yeah, Bob's, uh, he, Bob's a great guy. He's, he, we've had, I've done some events with him at the oh, really? kitchen. Yeah, he and his wife Leanne were so sweet. I, you know, I met them. She's as a, killer. She's yeah. amazing. Yeah, and I was like, please adopt me. But <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, and, and I always think of them and his you know generosity when I when I use it, which is every day. Yeah. yeah. Um, how do you take your coffee? I, I make my coffee like my mother does, which is it's a Melita pour over, but she's been doing that since way before that was a cool thing. A cool thing. Yeah. But always when we would travel, we were in a hotel somewhere, which we weren't very often, but I remember that she would take her coffee and her number four filters and it would be like ground from Melita and she would make her coffee that way. Uh, and then with honey and cream, half and half. Um, I use agave, but yeah, I drink my coffee like, like my mom. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Um, what is your, uh, what's your biggest pet peeve related to food? I don't know that I have one. I mean, uh, um, I don't know. I, you know, I grew up in a very kind of like, uh, traditional household. I, that's the only, that's the best word that I can think of to describe it. But, you know, it was dinner every night, set the table. Uh, we went to Episcopal church every Sunday. So we would say a prayer speak when spoken to, sir and ma'am. Um, there was a lot of formality and ritual around the dinner, and one of two prayers was usually recited. And the formality of that, and then the everyone's at the table until it's time to be excused. Like, honestly, I just can't shake it, you know? I'm <laughs> like, don't get up. You know, it's like, the, this dinner's not over yet. Like, I yeah. find myself... So I don't know if that's a pet peeve, but it's like, I, I kind of like... I. 
I like that it's like taken very seriously and that there is like a length to it and like you know like it, there's something kind of like I mean w without the speak when spoken to part of it yeah. if you take that out but it's like we're going to spend some time together sure now, and we're not going to like rush through anything and it's not like everyone has to stay forever but you know it, I want it to fill the evening and yeah. like um, so I think I don't know I guess my pet peeve would be like not embracing that yeah like don't yeah. start doing the dishes now or whatever sure. you know, don't turn on the appliance you know unless it's whipping some cream or whatever yeah you know like we're just gonna like respect the moment exactly to be together to sit together to eat to yeah yeah the the, the ritual of that and that yeah. there are all these things that happen leading up to that and then like this is the moment where the real thing happens which is like we're gonna be people hanging out for a long time talking mm -hmm. about Whatever's on our minds. Do you yeah. still say any kind of prayer when you eat? Only when I met my sister's house, which, much to my surprise, she started going to church with her son, who's now seven, hmm. and they say a prayer in two languages. And um, what's the second language? Spanish. Oh, okay. Yeah, he goes to a, a language immersion school cool. down the street from his house in Echo Park, nice. and yeah, and uh, he always corrects my pronunciation. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I grew up. I grew up Jewish. Uh, the, the sitting down to eat was always super important. I mean, we were those, like, you know, those, like, I mean, I, I talk to friends who don't live in New York, and they're like, God, you're, you New York people, your kids go to bed so late. I mean, I, when I was a kid, both my parents worked, and we would all, all we would often not sit down to dinner until, like, eight. Uh-huh. Uh, but we always sat down to dinner. Right. As a family, unless somebody was out of town, unless a parent was out of town. Uh, and so that was always really important to me, but prayer was never, never, ever, ever part of it and my wife and I past couple of years started spending Memorial Day weekends with a, with a family uh, large extended family who, whom we are friends with part of but then now friends with all of them and the matriarch of that family um, is 95 years old and is very uh, prayer conscious prayer based I mean the, the Lord is very important to her mm -hmm. and so at the meals at her house there is often a, a grace said. And so we picked up this grace from them that we now say with our family, but we also say itadakimasu, which is what uh -huh. they say in Japan before they eat. Uh, and so we have this kind of funny thing where like our kids are learning this thing that's like quasi-religious. I mean, the Lord is mentioned and stuff, but mm -hmm. it's not like, you know, we aren't, we're kind of a-religious people. Right. But then we also have this thing that comes out of more of like a, like Shinto almost, or Shinto or Buddhist kind of like Japanese cultural thing. Yeah. And we kind of like, stick them together and that's like how we say grace before meals that's fantastic yeah. but I, I mean I think it's like that seems like it's just imbuing it with something where you know you're taking this very it's seriously it's like an at the beginning yeah. of a yoga class this right? is like, like when we come together yeah. yeah like we're gonna exactly um, so acknowledging that and kind of you know putting whatever symbolism that makes sense to you on that I think is cool yeah I'm cool with that okay um, do you have a favorite book doesn't have to be food related yeah, I mean, I always used to say Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy, just because the prose is insane and, like, the research that went into that book, but um, it's so violent. I don't really, you know, it's not very on-brand for me. To <laughs> but no, I, I think that, yeah, that's a very a very special book to me. And The Joy of Cooking, I guess, if it was going to be a food book. Yeah. And it's just, like, there's always been a joy of cooking in my house, and my, my parents actually have marked like sort of annotated it with dates of things that they've made or you know like things connected to like feasts nice and yeah that book and uh 
James Beard's American Kitchen, uh, American Cooking, I believe it's called, yeah. um, are like the two iconic cookbooks of, of my childhood that are still in my parents' house that I like look forward to, you know, keeping forever. Yeah, yeah. awesome. Um, is there any particular like story or anecdote that you feel like would be a good one for Feast Your Ears that you wanted that you want to tell? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, what what, what do you think? <laughs> First time I tried to make vinegar, it turned into a like a fruit roll up. That's a good. Yeah, that's a good. <laughs> we talked about that. Yeah, we talked about that at the event. I don't know. Um, I think that it's fun to talk about like embarrassing things you've done in the kitchen I, because like the way that I got interested in food and the way that you know like starting to cook when you're like out on your own or whatever. Yeah. It's funny. There's it, it's almost like there's like a barrier for a lot of people or like still even at, you know, I'm 36 and like I go over to my friend's houses and they're like, I was nervous to cook for you. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, and I'm not, it's not like I'm a chef or anything like that. Um, I don't even really consider myself a food writer. I don't even really consider myself a writer. You know, it's just like, let's try to (laughs) be real about, you know, I'm just a guy who like, I like, I love being cooked for and I, I love cooking for people and I, I generally will like forgive a lot. And so, I don't know. I think that, whatever insert embarrassing story about like first time I tried to make vinegar like totally botched it or yeah. just like the weird stuff and then just like you know just like learning how to do it is um, that's not an anecdote at all but is important well, but I mean you know like the fun is in the search kind of thing right like, yeah you know like like part of it is the journey and like getting there and learning from doing and like and, and making your own kind of mental notes I mean you know I I mean this may you know this may or may not be a relevant anecdote but uh, the, today I, I had I made or yesterday a couple days ago I made my second batch of homemade tempeh mm-hmm. and this batch was way better than the first one because I sort of took some mental notes during the first one and like some things that didn't go the way I wanted them to it was too much liquid some other bacteria maybe like the temperature was a little bit messed up and like the second batch came out amazing mm-hmm. so like that definitely was like the first one wasn't great and I really wouldn't have wanted to serve it to anybody um and my kids looked at it and they were like, ugh, I don't want to go near that. Uh, and then the second one, at least my daughter tasted the batch I made today, but she didn't like it. Whatever. <laughs> kids use food as a lever. That's their problem. Sure. But, yeah, I think that doing that is important. And, like, from any fermentation projects, like, what, what's fun about it is that it's dynamic and that it requires attention and yep. readjusting and that it's not the same every time. Yeah. And that's cooking. Yep. Yeah. Totally. Uh, where can people find you on social media? Uh, I am at Richard Parks, uh, so it's my name, Richard Parks, except instead of an I, there are two E's, for no damn good reason, other than there are too many Richard Parks yeah. in the world. <laughs> as, as previously mentioned. Yeah, I guess I should find Richard Parks 3 is available. <laughs> um, and uh, website? HelloThisIsRichard.com. Cool. Yeah. And tell me about your podcast. Well, I'm doing one for work that I can't tell anyone about because okay. uh, I work for a big company. Secret, secret yeah, project, secret. But um, and I mean, I, I I have a couple episodes of a, a food podcast that I uh, I've labeled it as gastro comedy. Um, they're they're old but ancient. I recommend you check it out. Richard's famous food podcast, named after the salad dressing I made when I was a kid. Do you have the, is the recipe? Oh, you basically, the salad basically gave us the recipe. I haven't brought it up in the podcast yet. They're just a couple. It's kind of a zany. There's a lot of original music, a lot of sound design, and some attempts at jokes uh, and other kinds of humor. 
in there. So yeah, check that out. And then I record this thing called Live at the Astro with my friend David. We eat breakfast once a week at a diner in LA and record it. No plan. Awesome. Yeah. Sounds great. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Richard, for joining me on Feast Your Ears. It was an absolute pleasure to have this. Is this a growler? Uh, sure. Yeah, a growler. Folks, we got through a growler during this, yeah. so <laughs> thanks Here for your on patience. A sweaty Saturday afternoon in Brooklyn. <laughs> Underneath the BQE. Today's recipe is for a ginger shiso shrub. When I was in LA back in May, I made this to serve at the book event where Richard interviewed me. You can make this in a hotel bathroom. I did. Take two large knobs of ginger, wash them, slice them thin right into a quart container. Add 15 to 20 shiso leaves torn into small pieces. Cover the ginger and shiso with sugar. Close the container and shake it every half hour for a few hours so that the sugar starts to dry out the flavors. Pour apple cider vinegar or white wine vinegar in to fill the container and continue to shake it and let that infuse and dissolve all the sugar into the vinegar for at least 18 hours. Strain out the solids, mix it with shochu, about one part shrub to four to five parts shochu, and serve over ice. The people in Los Angeles liked it, and I'm sure you will too. Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. Big thank you to David Tattashore for engineering this show. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org, on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a moment to like the show, if you do in fact like it, on any of those platforms. And you can reach out to me if you have any questions, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. And you can follow me on social media, at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.